And a very good morning to you. It's Emma Nelson here and we're live in London and Zurich and you with Monocle on Sunday. To come in the next 60 minutes, well, we begin with a race as our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, is in a car hot-footing it from Zurich Airport. Tyler, where are you? Not even in the car yet, about to pick up the car. This is sort of feels like a new version of Challenge Anik. I just landed from Olvia. I am going to try to be in front of the microphone at Dufourstrasse in under 30 minutes. We have a wager on. Thank you very much indeed for that, Tyler. Still to come as well, my guests Emily Isao and Chandra Kurt will share their views on the weekend's biggest stories. Emily, what's grabbed your eye? So the Kenyans are heading to the polls on Tuesday in a rather high-stakes election. So we'll discuss why these elections matter, not just for Kenya, but more importantly for the broader region in East Africa as well. Thank you very much indeed. Emily Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov is on a mission in Estonia for us. And we find out the latest news from Thailand. Sawadee Car from Bangkok. This is Gwen Robinson for M24 and I'll be telling you about some extraordinary shifts in regional diplomacy we've seen in the last week. Join me then. Thank you, Gwen. Plus, we hear what's making headlines in the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. It's the 7th of August 2022, live from London and a car in Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. So I think it's fair to say we have a fairly loosely structured programme today, ladies and gentlemen, as our editorial director is making his way. And we have a wager on. In the meantime, I'll explain that in a minute. But in the meantime, let's uh, hear from our guests around the table in Dufourstrasse 90, Emily Usaha and Chandra Kurt. Good morning. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. How are you this morning? Well, mega relaxed and a little bit refreshed <laughs> because Zurich chilled down last night, so uh, we, we slept very good. All right, so you've had a, a hot week. We've had a hot week in London too. I'm happy as a sand girl as a result. Um, but how about you guys? You, you in, are you enjoying the heat, Chandra, or do you prefer to be coolly dipped? Well, you know, the, the problem is that these months or these weeks I have to taste so many wines that actually I would prefer to be chilled but uh, so in the heat and wine tasting was pretty hard okay how does it how does heat alter your ability to taste wine uh well it, it you know you actually you would prefer to drink a beer or something else than wine but you know you have to think you you are not professional and you taste so it makes the whole process slower and uh, longer and so the whole day i have these bottles in front of me and and it's tough it's hard it warm, is very hard warm sunshine taking things slowly, lots of bottles in front of you. Emily, has your has your week been as dreadful as Chandra's? It's been quite lovely, but I have to say, <laughs> uh, I mean, under normal circumstances, 20 degrees would feel rather warm. But as Chandra said, we've had a heat wave here. I think it was 36 degrees Celsius on Thursday. So compared to that, I was freezing this morning as I was making my way to Dufourstrasse. <laughs> well, making his way to Dufourstrasse 90 as well is our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. He has been in Sardinia. Um, we have been following his flight. He landed. We heard from him a few moments ago when he was on his way to the car. Uh, we have a bet on, ladies and gentlemen, don't we, that the, the, the Monocle on Sunday team, we are having a wager to work out at what time our editorial director, Tyler, is going to be standing in front of the microphone uttering his first words to Monocle on Sunday. First of all, this is commitment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's impressive. But I mean, Tyler, of all people, would do that. Right. OK, so um, let's have a let's have a little bit of a sweepstake, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not entirely sure what the prize is. We might have to ask Tyler what the prize is. Um, but OK, so I've got my my number down is I think he's going to utter his first words in front of the microphone at 24 minutes past. Um, that's in exactly 20 minutes time. Um, Chandra, any advance on 24 minutes past? I thought 17. 17. OK. Yeah. Emily? 27 for me. 
Ooh. <laughs> okay, Even though so there you... shouldn't be traffic in Zurich, but still uh, 27. You yeah. and I are now going head to head, which is uh, <laughs> which is going to be sort of like, there's that three minutes difference, and I'm not quite sure what happens. Um, our, uh, the, the lady behind it, the glass, uh, Nora Hole, has uh, said that she's she's not got, she's not holding out much hope. She's now saying past 30. Uh, our producer in uh, in Dufourstrasse 90, Desi, do we know what uh, what time do we think that Tyler's going to be uttering his first words? I'd say 15 past. 15 past. <laughs> I mean, that's fighting talk, but actually you probably know better than anybody else. Okay, so let's just recap. I'm saying 24 minutes past. Uh, Chandra says 17 minutes past. Emily, 27 minutes past. Nora, past the half past heads. Goodness me. And uh, Desi with her fighting talk of uh, 15 minutes past. Okay, we shall see. Uh, Tyler is aware of this, but he doesn't know what timings we're all saying. Um, Let's have a look at what's been happening in the news. Uh, Emily, you wanted to start off with, with Kenya. That's right. And usually um, I wouldn't perhaps talk about elections um, taking place in, in, in any country as an important piece of news uh, as such. But uh, I think the elections in Kenya taking place this Tuesday are important um, for a number of reasons. So why should we care about um, Kenyans electing a successor to Uhuru Kenyatta, who's been in power since 2013? So that in and of itself. So it's a transitional election in the sense we are looking beyond um, the Kenyatta rule. And I think at least on four accounts, we should care about these elections um, for the broader region. So economy is the obvious one. Uh, Kenya being a main transportation and commercial hub in the region, also for technological innovation and any incidences that might go wrong with these um, elections. Um, electoral violence has been uh, widespread in previous elections in Kenya would of course have implications more broadly in the neighborhood. Okay. Uh, but secondly, I think from the perspective of democracy, uh, if you look at East Africa, you don't have um, a shortage of iron fist uh, rulers, uh, if you look at Uganda and Rwanda, for instance. Um, so Kenya has been viewed as a healthy democracy. And so again, if the elections go smoothly, uh, which they hopefully will, it would send a powerful example to fellow governments in the region. Um, and, and thirdly, of course, Kenya has been the side of uh, peace talks, I, uh, of course, mediation is a, is a field that I follow rather closely. Um, so Kenya's ability to continue serving that role in the region, be it uh, when it comes to Ethiopia or the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, um, again, uh, for Kenya to continue playing that mediative role um, will be linked a bit to the outcome of these elections. And, and finally, uh, perhaps on a more positive spin, um, Kenyan elections in the past have been very much marked by ethnic tensions and regional tensions within the country. But it seems that in these um, elections, in the campaign, ethnicity and regional dynamics have been less at the forefront. And it's been more of a class struggle, almost, if you will. Um, one of the candidates has been talking about hustlers versus uh, political dynasties. So again, the way politics are fought and, and, and waged um, in, in Kenya seems to be changing as well. OK, well, I'm sure we'll be talking about that a little bit later on as well as we uh, as we go into our full panel after the half past headlines. One thing I do want to do before we uh, check in with Petri Burtsov, who's up in Helsinki, is to, uh, in anticipation of Tyler's arrival, obviously, uh, is to play the wine quiz. Um, one of those things each week where we uh, give you, Chandra, a wonderful test that we tell you what we're going to be eating and you tell us what wine you're going to be serving with us. Um, Emily, she's in front of you. What are you asking Chandra for this week? 
So last night um, I had this lovely Bicol Express, which is a Filipino dish, um, a popular dish in the Bicol region. And then they're leftover still uh, for this evening. And it's a dish um, that's extremely spicy. It has some coconut milk in it. It has lots of chili peppers, um, lots of uh, ginger and garlic. So a lot of rich flavors. And I did try to pair it with some red wine yesterday, but I think I failed miserably. So any recommendations? Spicy food, I think it's a tough uh, thing to pair wine with. It's not so simple, but we will find something. But you digested very well. I don't feel any any of your of your dinner last night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Chandra. Um, right. <laughs> I think that's sinking. Um, Chandra, my <laughs> test for you is that I have two beautiful exploding tomato plants on my windowsill. They are full, ready, ripe to bursting. It's tomatoes, just fresh, plain, normal tomatoes tonight, maybe with some olive oil, maybe with a bit of basil, but just a knife and fork and some bread to go with it. What am I drinking with tomatoes? They're not easy. Bloody Mary. No, I will think about the wine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right. Okay. That is all sorted. Chandra's been given her job. So let's head now to, well, let's head up north to a country that's very close to our hearts. Our Helsinki correspondent, Petri Butsov, is currently in Estonia on the beach, Petri. Yes. Good morning, Emma. So I'm sitting on a sun lounger here in the uh, coastal resort town of Pärnu. Emily, as a, as a Finn, might actually know this place. It's a very popular summer destination among Finns, Swedes, and, and, and residents of all the, all the Baltic countries. Just, you know, a wide, sandy, uh, pristine uh, beaches, almost, almost like a Riviera feeling. And all of this in Estonia. So, you know, this, this sounds like a place that I needed to write a monocle story on. So we've been actually touring this region of southern Estonia now for a couple of days, going to different farms and, and restaurants and, and vineyards and... and, and you know, um, all kinds of really wonderful, wonderful places. It's It's been a summery week here. We're all having a dreadful week, aren't we? Chandra, you're tasting wine. Petri's on a beach. Uh, Tyler's been on holiday in Sardinia. Emily, how green are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> I've been in the office, but thankfully we have a lovely cooling system in the office, so actually I've been okay during the heat wave. Wonderful. Okay, Petri, from your desperately difficult situation, tell us what's happening where you are, apart from dipping your toes in the sand. <laughs> Yeah, so so I did have to pick up the local Postimes uh, newspaper to see what's happening in Estonia. So uh, the talk of the country at the moment is the removal of Soviet uh, statues and war memorials uh, from all over Estonia. So there's still uh, between 200 and 400 sort of statues and memorials left uh, that needed to be um, taken down. The government uh, decided uh, um, that all of these monuments will be taken down, and that has led to quite a lot of controversy in eastern Estonia, which has a, a large Russian-speaking population. So um, we've now seen protests in, in the town of Narva, close to the Russian border, and we, of course, all remember how in 2007 in Tallinn, we saw widespread protest. Um, um, after the removal of a Soviet bronze soldier uh, statue. So so quite a delicate balancing act here, but I think the government has made its mind up uh, about removing these statues. Tell us about the protests. Are these people who are desperate for these these statues to be taken down, or are these people who would prefer that they would stay? Well, well that's the thing I've been asking asking the locals here. Like, what, 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 why are, what are they protesting? Because the Russians living in Estonia aren't exactly friends of, of Putin. But the answer that I get from from pretty much everybody that I talk to is is that it's somehow orchestrated by the neighbor in the in the east. 
that these are not necessarily you know deep uh, seated um, sentiments in in the people but they're basically just about uh, you know um, they've been told that now your identity is being taken away um, and and of course it's it's easy to play with this it's it's a very delicate situation with the with the emotions of the Soviet past here so so that's the sense that I get Emily let me bring you in here obviously with with your connections to all this I mean that the delicacy of this of this job and with and Betrius has talked about the protests in Tallinn in 2007 over the removal of a Soviet era bronze statue how difficult a path is this to tread I'm, I'm just about to come in as, as Tyler is making his way. I'm, I'm uh, so afraid that I lost the bet miserably. Yeah, can okay, someone so who's, who's, the big, who's the big winner? <laughs> I think it's Desi. Desi it's Desi. Won. She's okay. closest. Hello, hello, Tyler. Hello. Hello, Petri, Emma. Petri, stay with us. We've got Petri on a beach, I Tyler. Did it in, I did it in 17 minutes. Oh, my goodness. Well done. Yeah. Are you okay? I'm fine. And, ze- and zero, zero Swiss regulations being breached in any shape or form. No, didn't see any flashing lights. All good. So glad to hear it. Ladies and gentlemen, our editorial director, Tyler Brule. Have you got a coffee and are you settled down? Almost, almost. I, I'm glad you've announced it. I think the coffee will be inbound. Okay. <laughs> Petri, um, Tyler's here now. And Emily, uh, it was just about to mm. ask you about the fact that this is, you know, this whole issue of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the delicate balance that must be struck when, it terms, mm-hmm. when we're taking away statues from, from public places. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it is a delicate process and you have a similar process that have taken place in Hamburg and in, in, in other cities around the world. And, and I think actually, again, a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think the process is more important than perhaps the final outcome. Um, so all voices um, that feel like they have a say in, in the removal or, or kind of keeping of a statue or any other memorial um, need to be uh, feel t- uh, or that they feel included in the process and, and again the outcome might look different depending on the context um, uh, but from a process standpoint it has to be participatory and quite transparent because uh, if that's not the case people will feel that they've been sidelined and, and, and again um, uh, their views haven't been taken into account but there, there have been some positive examples say in Hamburg uh, with some World War II memorials as well that have been well accepted more broadly. Petri, let's move on to another story that you've picked up. We do love a bit of transport infrastructure and, and the gauges of a railway line are, are pretty important if you're in Estonia. Yes, that's correct. So this is another story uh, that I picked up in the Postimes uh, newspaper. So essentially uh, all the Baltic countries in Finland uh, currently use the so-called Russian uh, wide gauge uh, uh, rail tracks a little bit wider than the European standard is, and this is because of the uh, Russian and Soviet era uh, past when, when these tracks were built. But now the EU has proposed that uh, that essentially all the EU member states move to a common gauge, um, and this is the sort of, in order to facilitate uh, more efficient tra- rail transport within the bloc, but then also to uh, in order to isolate uh, Russia. Now, uh, of course, Changing the gauge in a country like Estonia or, in fact, a country like Finland would require, as you can imagine, a massive reconstruction because you would have to take take down essentially all the uh, existing rail tracks and, and, and build new ones. So Finland has already argued that you know this is this EU proposal is completely unreasonable. Uh, now Estonia, now I'm reading in the Postimes, uh, the transport minister here argues that you know we need to Estonia can't do it alone. We need all the four countries. Uh, uh, together um, on, on, on this. But then I think another interesting point is that there is actually already a narrow-gauge European rail uh, project taking place, and that's the Rail Baltica that's been uh, in the works for quite a few years now. 
basically um, um, railway connecting uh, Tallinn to the Polish uh, border where the European gauge rail track starts. So, so um, I'm, I'm not sure I fully understand this protest since they're already building narrow gauge tracks. Finally, Petri, what's on the cards for you for the next few days? What's, what are you reading? What are you looking at? What are you hoping to enjoy while you're in Estonia? So uh, I've been here actually all week and I should head back today. But it's a lovely sunny day here on the beach. And just before coming, coming on air, I was, I was Googling how I can change my uh, ferry, ferry ticket to go, to go back since, um, you know, lovely 25 degrees. Uh, I see some people on the beach here playing beach volleyball, ultimate frisbee, very little wind. Sounds like good uh, swimming conditions. So I think I might just stay here for a couple of days. Not so bad. Petri, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the line from Pano in Estonia. Tyler, you know um, that part of the world pretty well, don't you? Indeed, I think it was. Uh, I was there exactly a year ago that I was uh, in Pärnu um, on a day not unlike it is in Zurich here today, about uh, high teens, uh, low twenties, rather windy. I'm dispatching my mother and uh, my cousin though uh, again in a few weeks' time, and they'll be doing a little bit of an Estonian tour. Petri, I think may have gone by then. Thank you so much to Petri Vertsov. <laughs> Tyler, you're all settled in. I am. I am all settled. I'm still waiting for my coffee, but anyway. Okay, uh, that's fine. I, that will come. You're in the right place. I, I am in the right place, <laughs> and uh, it is uh, it is all good. I have to say, uh, it's lovely seeing, uh, of course, uh, Chandra here uh, this morning. We, Chandra, we have much to discuss in the way of of Sardinian wines as well. Emma, you would have rather enjoyed. Uh, our, our little dinner uh, on top of a mountain last night in uh, in Sardinia. My goodness, it is on the list for next year. I'm going to go and um, I'm being, I'll be picking your brains a little bit later on. Can we stay in Italy though? Well, we're going to stay in in well, sort of Italian politics at least because we have um, Enrico Franceschini, who's a London correspondent for La Repubblica, on the line. Uh, a very good morning to you, Enrico. Good morning, Emma. On the line from Suffolk. And you're joined by the whole gang. We've got Tyler and Chandra and Emily uh, on the line as well from our studio in Zurich. <laughs> Hello to everybody. Um, Buongiorno. And one, one nice thing is that, Enrico, I'm not quite sure how well acquainted you are with Sardinia, but our editorial director, Tyler, has just fallen off a plane from there. Well, I am quite, uh, I know Sardinia quite well. It is a wonderful place. Uh, uh, the the color of the sea beats uh, the the Maldives island. Uh, it's it's unbelievable, and the countryside. It's a real special place. Tyler, did you dip your toes in this amazing blue sea? I did dip my toes in this amazing <laughs> blue sea, and may, maybe actually we can uh, maybe start on Rico on one story, which is it's six seven years old now. But I thought it was quite you know fascinating because I got on the plane from Olbia this morning, landed in Zurich in less than an hour. And there was a fascinating story. It was in the Wall Street Journal. I think I'm sure it was in La Repubblica, probably around 2014, 2015, that there was a move, a very small independence movement. Of course, there are many independence movements in Sardinia. But of course, uh, there were some that were calling for uh, Sardinia to become the 27th canton of Switzerland. They wanted to call it uh, Can- uh, Cantoni Maritima. Um, and, and, that, and they thought, of course, if they joined with Switzerland, all of their problems would be solved. So um, interesting. And I was actually sort of thinking as I was flying back, wouldn't be too bad actually uh if this was the 27th canton of switzerland 
Well, it wouldn't be too bad for Switzerland. It would be quite bad for Italy because we'd lose one of our gems. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, Sardinia had an independence movement in the 60s, uh, uh, but uh, they never thought of joining uh, Switzerland. They wanted to become uh, an independent country uh, on their own. Uh, I, I don't think they are very similar uh, in, from any point of view to Switzerland. Switzerland, by the way, as you know, as a, as a canton, as a part of Switzerland, is Italy, but as different from Sardinia as you can imagine. Indeed, yeah. Ticino and uh, Sardinia are rather, well, geographically not that far apart, but, uh, but I'd say mentally, mindset-wise, rather different. Yes, 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 they are. They're really north and south, uh, and, and uh, the, the old uh, Lombardia, Milan, is more more similar, definitely, to to that part of um, of uh, Switzerland. And I'd say uh, we'd rather keep Sardinia the way it is, part of Italy, with great proud, great, great pride from from us Italians to have uh, such a wonderful island, uh, uh, where. By the way, our uh, hero of uh, protagonist of the unity of Italy, Giuseppe Garibaldi, is buried in one little island. So I, I invite people who, who uh, visit uh, uh, Sardinia to, do, to go to Caprera near the uh, Maddalena Island where uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, the great general, is buried. Uh, Enrico, we were, what, a week before Ferragosto. Where is everybody going in Italy this year? Well, you know, they're going to the sea, they're going to the mountains, uh, they're going abroad. 35 million people out of 60 are going on vacation. This is a tradition that goes back to the Roman times. You know, when the, the 15th of August is called Ferragosto, from the Latin Feria Augusti, the, the holiday of Emperor Augustus, who gave one day off uh, to the ancient Romans. Since then, uh, it used to be when I was young that uh, in August the cities of Italy became like you know the Sahara Desert, everything was everything was closed. Nobody was around. Now it is different. People pick different uh, weeks and uh, parts of the summer to go. But mid-August, it's really time to go, and they go really. It's interesting. Italians go everywhere uh, to you know the sea near home, but also to very exotic uh, destinations. Uh, I remember um, at the beginning of the summer, I asked a friend of mine where he was going uh, from Bologna. He was saying. Uh, and then he said, I'm going to Qatar. I said, why to Qatar? And he said, actually, I wanted to go to Oman, but all places were already taken in Oman <laughs> because uh, Italians travel uh, like crazy. And it's a question that, that needs to be asked. In the middle of all this, they're trying to set up elections. We've got centre-left parties forming an alliance. We have total political meltdown. I mean, how much genuinely do people care as they've got their feet sulla spiaggia and, and, and enjoying the sunshine? I doubt that they, <laughs> I doubt that they follow it very closely. Of course, every newspaper has about ten pages of coverage of the elections. But uh, uh, you know, like everybody else, during uh, vacation, people rather you know read a book or chat or or just uh, look at the social media and enjoy themselves. Um, the elections are on the 25th of September, 
and probably uh, I, I suspect that at the beginning of September uh, the, the Italians will start uh, to uh, follow more closely uh, what's going on. As you mentioned, the, the centre-left has formed some kind of alliance. We'll see if it lasts a month uh, until uh, a month and a half until the elections against the centre-right who was given favourite by the polls uh, uh, for the moment. Uh, is the usual... Uh, uh, usual mess, uh, while uh, Prime Minister Draghi is still there, you know, um, trying to keep the, the, the boat floating. Tyler, from your hilltop dinner or from the pool where you're surrounded by women with lips like paddling pools, um, was there much talk of elections or was it more about whether their bikinis fitted? Well, well it didn't, didn't matter um, if the bikinis fit or not because <laughs> they sort of seemed to disappear. Can I say this on a Sunday morning yes. show? Yes, uh, people's bum cracks. Uh, but any, anyway, Chandra, you would have been, Chandra would have been absolutely mortified what was, uh, just bringing our listeners up to speed slightly uh, in my column today, I, I talk about what do you do when a bunch of Instagrammers and their photographers descend on a hotel and it seems to be sort of a lips, boobs and bums convention. This is this is what was happening. You would have had many views on this, Chandra, as well, just because of the the, the, the form, the the, the, the the augmented think, female form. Well, I will look at it like more maybe anthropos, anthrop, tell me, uh, anthroposophical, and I suppose I will not leave the balcony. I will just be astonished and say, where, what happened to the planet Earth? Where are we going? Well, it, it's kind of amazing that that a hotel manager allows people to, or allows a group of people to to descend on a property and just turn it into their own private photo studio. I mean, it just amazes me that people have their own photographers and all of these other things, but they're yeah, blocking out the sunlight and, and many other things. You would be very safe to stay on your balcony, I think. Anyway, Emma, back to your question. <laughs> Beyond all of this, there was very, very little talk of the Italian elections because most of these people were not Italians. Um, so we're not really concerned about uh, what was happening in Sardinia or, or certainly back on the mainland. I think they're probably more... more I mean, did, did you work out how to... I mean, there's, there's a potential for tons and tons of sabotage when it comes to these um, these Instagrammers, isn't it? I mean, you just need... All I can do is dispatch my 10-year-old and that's, that's their day ruined because yeah. everything that they can do, we can use him as a, as a weapon. Enrico, have we got a have you got a lot of people in Italy now using their, their swimming pools as, as Instagram friendly locations because it's hot and it's sunny? Has this has this crossed your radar at all? Um, you mean taking pictures uh, of of yourself uh, on, by the by pool uh, on Instagram? Mm. Well, um, I didn't do it personally. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm I'm not by a pool. As by by the way, I'm enjoying uh, these days for this weekend the uh, the beaches of Suffolk, uh, which are not bad. Today is very sunny day. Uh, the the sea is beautiful and uh, living in London uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those Italians who's uh, spending the whole of August uh, in Italy but uh, uh, no I, I, I don't do it but I know a lot of people do that and I, I was reading the other day an article on the Financial Times on how many photographs we now take to put them on the social media or not on our telephones compared to what uh, at least my generation did uh, when, when we were young. It's, it's thousands and thousands of, uh, of photos and uh, many of them are forgettable or, or we tend to forget them. It's difficult to find them uh, when, when you scroll in your, in your iPhone or your uh, smartphone. 
Taylor, what have you taken a photograph recent, of recently? I've sent some pictures of tomatoes to Chandra this morning. That's the only I did thing I've well, I was, I was also, I was sharing beverage photos just now because <laughs> at, at the lovely Hilltop dinner uh, yesterday evening, we had a wonderful Vermentino uh, from a vineyard. I was asking Chandra if she knew uh, Capicera, but uh, this is a really fantastic vineyard. I understand it was recently sold uh, for quite a handsome uh, sum of money. So that was, that's what I was sharing. So that's just for my, my wine research photo. Chandra, I was going to ask you, what, what, how do you organize all of of your bottle photography uh, or, or, or do you even need a reference point yeah. on your phone? There, there is the good thing is now that because of all these these new cameras and, and photo um, opportunities, everybody has now photos of the bottles. In the past, it was really much more difficult and we had to, to make sketches to remember everything. But now the photos are there. So this is a positive point of this evolution. And also I think some wine uh, operators have, there's there's AI, they recognize yeah. the, the label, of course, already, and it can wind up in your shopping basket, which I can imagine can be rather dangerous. It's, uh, it is, you know, if things anyway go too fast and you don't think enough, it's, it's not so good. I think we should learn to think a little bit longer also before we take too many pictures. Emma, on that note, we should probably remind people as well that mm. um, in, in my column today, where we are, of course, talking about um, the Instagrammers uh, with all of their physical augmentation, we have a, we're running a quiz. And so, of course, this time next week, we'll be announcing probably just before we go to the news uh, that uh, we, we have th- we'll have three winners. So in today's column, uh, I pose five questions uh, to our readers, uh, and, and it's all based around this notion, which Chandra is alluding to, to common sense. Uh, and what, what are the common sense answers to, to these five questions uh, that, that are in the column? So listeners, uh, you have until 1800 Tuesday uh, to get your answers in. That's 1800 Zurich time to get your answers in. And Emma, next week, we will, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, there'll be drum rolls, uh, there'll be marching bands, uh, all kinds of things, as, as of course, we're going to turn next week's show into a phone-in program. Excellent. I can't wait. We don't do that very often, but when we do, it's always a bit seat of your pants. So I'm looking forward to it. The subject very much matter- so. <laughs> <laughs> the, speaking of seat of your pants, the, the, the subject matters you're dealing with are what? Video, video conferencing and, and dogs with, with, with slight problems. Exactly. There's 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 five there's five parts to this. There's the Instagrammers. Uh, there is what happens when you're invited to um, a dinner and and you say that uh, the, the things that you like, but of course you've mistyped it and, and none of what is, shows up on your plate is actually something that you really like. Um, how do how do you uh, share an interesting story, or should you share a story about uh, cancel culture uh, with an American audience that you feel has completely moved on? There's another piece about, of course, a dog, a, a particular gassy dog um, that was that was that was in the mountains, um, and uh, and and the. Fifth what escapes me right now. Enrico, very briefly, what's on the cards for you this afternoon? This afternoon, uh, a stroll on the beach. Okay, that's, not, that's... not the one near the nuclear, <laughs> not the one near Sizewell B, though, I hope. No, no. Good, because you've got to pick You got to pick your beaches in Suffolk. If you're not careful, you'll get one under the shade of a large nuclear power plant's dome. Am I right, Enrico? <laughs> no, I, I will make sure to, to find the, the nice spot. Thank you, Enrico. That was Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica, currently in Suffolk, but bringing us up to date with all the holiday news from Italy, Tyler. Uh, Emma, I don't think I've ever been. I've, I think have I been to the beaches of Suffolk? I don't think I have. I think I've you'd remember. Many, I've been, I haven't been to many beaches <laughs> in the U, in the UK, but that's a whole other story. Emma Nelson, I believe uh, it's uh, it's ten thirty and thirty seconds uh, here in Zurich. You've got the news. I have. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Air raid sirens have been heard in Jerusalem this morning. It follows a series of Israeli airstrikes on Gaza, while the militant Islamic Jihad group fired hundreds of rockets into Israel. Taiwan officials have accused China of rehearsing an attack on the island as part of Beijing's retaliation.
retaliation for a visit there by the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. A foreign flagged ship has arrived in Ukraine for the first time since the war started in February. The ship will, according to the Ukrainian authorities, be loaded with grain. Days before Kenya votes in national elections, one Nairobi MP's campaign has been sabotaged by local livestock. Posters of George Turi have been pasted up using a glue made of a mixture of wheat flour and water, and it's a mixture proving irresistible to local goats who have been peeling off and chewing the posters. And two small towns in Sardinia have developed a fierce rivalry over who has the highest percentage of people living to 100 or beyond. Perdasa Fogo is seizing on its recognition from the Guinness World Records as the place with the largest concentration of centenarians, currently seven of them in a population of 1,700. But Sierlu is saying that the, uh, they have a bigger number. Apparently the secret, Chandra, is a glass of wine a day. Cananau wine apparently has three times the level of flavonoids as other wines, and that's what make, is making people live so long. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Thank you. And to, of course, our wine correspondent and, of course, yeah, of course, health correspondent as well. Uh, Chandra Kerr, would you would you concur with that? I love Emma. I love the, the, the hints she gives me and she makes me really taste more wines and, and to love my work even more. And um, I agree because, you know, if, if you if you drink a glass of wine and you eat with it, you do it really with all your senses and maybe you eat slower and you, you don't drink sugar, you know, if you do sweet drinks. So I think eating and, and having a good glass of wine is always good. Interesting, because also if, if, we, if we think about also other places that we love, Sardinia, of course, uh, one of them, but then also we think about the island uh, of, of Okinawa as well. And I want to know, um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe, well, we're going to go to Bangkok in a second and, and speak to our, our, our Gwen Robinson, not, not, not quite so close to Okinawa, but of course she's been based in Japan for some time because I'd like her view on that as well. Why is it that you have so, so many uh, people living to 100 in Sardinia, so many people likewise in Okinawa doing the same, if it's a glass of wine, which is helping them out in Sardinia, not quite sure what, uh, what it is um, if they're living uh, in and around Naha. Emma, should we, uh, should we make our way to Bangkok? Why not? Why not? Uh, just briefly before that, this, this the Sardinian story comes from a beautiful article in the New York Times, uh, where the the townspeople are saying that actually it's uh, a jiggly cheese and uh, the wine and zucchini, which makes people live for so long. There's also not much to do, so that you don't get you don't run around too much. Well, and it's interesting, isn't it? Okay, fine, the vegetable you know bit we get, but then you're talking dairy, and then you're talking alcohol um, as well and it seems that all, all good things for you it's absolutely wonderful it's also um, there's it, one place is near a, a former nuclear base uh, which was once shut down for dumping hazardous uranium enriched waste <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure what these, these people have made a pretty well, stern stuff I was going to say and they're all like five metres tall as well <laughs> uh, anyway uh, let's uh, go to I think to we ba- have Gwen yeah we have Gwen, Gwen Robinson uh, our correspondent <laughs> in Bangkok uh, so I'd have good morning or good afternoon Gwen Okay, Gwen, maybe just start. Why don't we just go a little bit north of where you are? Do you have any thoughts or or ideas as to why people in Okinawa live so long? And I guess we're trying to drive at the fact that um, is is there any alcohol involved? Because we always hear that that Okinawans you know live so long because there's a sense of community. People are out in out in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it allows people to remain spry as well. But of course, there is a lot of rocket juice uh, as well because mm-hmm. I've, I've I've had the you know the 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 odd. Uh, um, yeah, little sort of after dinner chaser, um, and and there is uh, some real firewater on that island uh, right. as well. Well, indeed, but let's put it in context here. Japan has amongst the, the highest longevity rates in the world, so it's all in context. I think 
you know, a lot of the older citizens of Japan are actually from Honshu or other areas, but I agree there's something very robust about the Okinawan people who historically didn't see themselves as part of Japan per se. They were an independent kingdom and they've developed, they do have an incredibly fiery spirit, awamori, uh, which is uh, made of actually, I think it's Thai strain of rice, um, fermented and and they really managed to get it to rocket fuel levels. Um, however, in recent research, I, I came across, there's a real strand in Okinawan cuisine of sort of healthy things like bitter gourd and lots of sort of weird things that we may not really think about eating. Um, but it seems to do it for them. And uh agree, maybe it's also a sort of hardy island mentality, but uh, uh, the longevity rates overall are, are pretty good. <laughs> So Gwen, we've got the uh, the the important uh, issues, uh, at least on on the the, the 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 health and fun side of things. Uh, it, it has been really a remarkable uh, week in your neighbourhood, uh, mm. ASEAN conference. Uh, but of course, all eyes uh, on that um, U.S. Air Force uh, 737 uh, landing uh, in in Taipei. How how is that story? played out because there is, of course, a European lens, a lens which is, uh, of course, reflected on Ukraine. And of course, what, you know, what does this mean um, in terms of, 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 of a China and, 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 uh, and, and the China's, of course, relationship with, with Taiwan. But, but of course, then through the ASEAN region, through, of course, what this means to Tokyo and to Seoul, not to mention, of course, the, the United States. Well, exactly. I mean, it's been, I think, uh, an unprecedented week of, you know, in diplomacy and security in uh, the Asian region generally. But I think what escaped some of the world is that everybody who was anybody in almost global diplomacy was sitting in Cambodia for a a couple of days uh, uh, just on Thursday and Friday for the uh, annual ASEAN uh, foreign ministers uh, meeting that comes after their summit, uh, which is... uh, with uh, their 27 member uh, countries of the ASEAN Regional Forum. So we had like, you know, the Chinese Foreign Minister, the Russians, the Americans, Blinken flew in for that. Um, You know, everybody, even Papua New Guinea and all kinds of countries like that. And that um, really kind of galvanised attention on what was going on. ASEAN itself, which is a, a 10 member association of Southeast Asian countries, really wanted desperately to keep the focus on on their issues but in fact the Pelosi visit to Taiwan and then the associated fallout I think you could say over very much overshadowed uh, ASEAN and the agenda there were lots of sideline whispers and um, uh, you know discreet discussions so I think it sort of lifted uh, lifted the the overall tone of it uh, out of like the immediate regional to really focus on on Asia per se, the role of China, um, you know, the Ukraine conflict, but then also all, all the daily reports of China's sort of outraged reactions um, also caused, I think, an extra tone of anxiety and reminded these small Southeast Asian states that they're very much caught between the big powers and, and to a point are a little bit helpless to do much about it. Um, but overall, I think the dynamics of ASEAN itself were... Um, saw a remarkable shift because in uh, the first time in their history, which dates back to the Cold War era, they are now focusing on the problem of Myanmar. Uh, The Burmese junta has been um, 
you know, uh, on a rampage of violence. And I think this is finally getting to ASEAN. Uh, let's say a lot of those countries also are not really strangers to human rights issues, but this is really getting too much. So there was very serious talk about possibly suspending Myanmar from their um, ministerial meetings uh, from now. So uh, I think we it, it really is changing the tone. Gwen, do you have any um, a sense when you think about the ASEAN community, who stood out when you think about the the assembled leaders there, and I'm and I'm not talking about maybe the the, the let's say the, the broader friends and family that were invited in, but thinking about the ASEAN neighborhood, who's seen as really a diplomatic leader, either as an individual or a ministry? Is it the Singaporeans? Um, you know, are the Thais doing a good job? Do, should we be looking to Jakarta? How do you see it? Well, that's such a good question. Um, first of all, you know, ASEAN is sort of informally bound in by these principles of what they call centrality and non-interference in each other's affairs. So that's always kept them slightly um, constrained about uh, these kind of, you know, throwing bombs into the the group or, or trying to go your own way. But in fact, what we've seen in the last few months is this remarkable uh, show from Malaysia of all countries and I think very few people expected Malaysia to come out so strongly. But the Malaysian foreign minister, who's a very interesting character and comes from a kind of NGO background himself, um, but it's a fairly conservative or centrist administration in Malaysia, but suddenly he's the one urging his fellow ASEAN members to suspend Myanmar. He accused the Burmese junta of crimes against humanity for executing four democracy activists. He um, he has been the first ASEAN uh, minister to meet with the shadow national unity government, which is the parallel kind of, you know, government in opposition of uh, Myanmar. And uh, I think it's taken ASEAN really by surprise because the chairmanship at the moment is held by Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen, who did his best, I think, to break the deadlock over Myanmar. But, uh, you know, no, it's over to the Malaysians and Saifuddin up. Abdullah, the ASEAN, uh, the Malaysian foreign minister. We'll see what happens, though, in November when the baton of leadership passes to Indonesia, which takes its turn as rotating chairman of, of ASEAN for a year. Um, and Indonesia has in the past been very vocal about uh, Myanmar and, uh, and uh, some of the rights issues. And Gwen, you've set us up very well because we just had our James Chambers has just uh, been touring uh, Indonesia uh, with Jokowi, which is going to be um, in the next issue uh, of the magazine, uh, which should be landing with uh, our readers over the next uh, seven, seven or eight days. But that's just just gone to press. Uh, just Gwen, just stay there for a second. Um, Emily, I just wanted to bring you in on this. As you look at all of these summits and, and of course, your patch uh, being a diplomatic one in, in the purest sense, conflict resolution, etc. It's, it's interesting from a human dynamic point of view because you've had now two years of people largely being on screens not getting together and then suddenly people all pile into a room together uh, do you think people are maybe better behaved or more poorly behaved as well because suddenly you're confronting uh, you know, people who are yeah, well there's something that just happens across a table which doesn't happen across a screen mm. I, I, personally I think it's harder to be rude in person uh, it's easier to shut off your screen on, on Zoom or in Teams or just kind of not appear uh, whereas in person you at least have to justify it somehow and well, it, you weren't it, at the lobby at, at the hotel I was at <laughs> yesterday because I've never seen so many 
rude people to staff. It's quite was quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, no. And then I think, uh, say, if you look at ASEAN, for instance, as a kind of a regional organization, as an institution, I, I, I would argue it's still relatively weak in terms of its capacities. But behind it, you have, of course, the big powers in the region, from Malaysia to Indonesia. So it, as a convening organization, it does serve an important role. And again, creating these spaces when foreign leaders beyond the region come to Cambodia or next year in, in, in Indonesia. So, of course, it's important. Um, what I think will be interesting to watch, uh, just in one additional point related to ASEAN, is, is the question of East Timor. I think there's a lot of pressure for East Timor to be um, accepted as an ASEAN member as well. And I think they're looking at Jakarta as the former colonial power under their chairmanship to make that happen. Mm. Gwen, um, I just maybe want to, um, we, we were talking at the start of this um, and focusing a bit on, on Okinawa. Japan in the headlines uh, right now, if I look at the the Nikkei, one of the lead stories uh, is just Japan is now the nation in the world uh, with the fastest rising cases uh, with COVID again. Um, and this has thrown the country into you know a term that we we use around here from time to time, a Japanic. Uh, and, uh, and and now calls and, and the sense again that um, things should be tightened up and it, it's pushing the the reopening of the country uh, back again, or at least it stays in this sort of current state that, that it's in. Your reflection on that, just of course, uh, being in the region, but uh, also what is happening in Thailand at the moment? Well, yeah, I mean, Good points, uh, all of them. And in fact, uh, we've just been sitting in Thailand for a couple of years with huge debates going on um, and, you know, hysteria about accusations of uh, the Thais killing their own tourism industry with excessive caution and when should they open, when should they not. And, you know, a lot of debate. And clearly the lesson being that, you know, no government will be ever be able to do the right thing because there will always be almost equal division for and against opening up. The Japanese government has been hit a lot uh, for being excessively cautious. And uh, of course, as I'm sure you've discussed, uh, it it is getting a bit ridiculous, uh, the restrictions on entry to Japan. And uh, this latest wave has been mounting for a long time. And uh, they were, I think, stoically trying to stay on track with a tentative opening plan. But this you know, it seems it's all getting too much for them and uh, it's likely to drive them further deeper into lockdown. Is that a good thing? Well, they've practically half killed a lot of the tourism-oriented industries, I think, and, um, you know, uh, restaurants and hotels. Um, They tried to subsidise and encourage domestic tourism until they realised that that was partly resulting in a kind of super-spreader effect to encourage city clickers to go out into the countryside. So I think they're actually between a rock and a hard place on all this. And uh, and there's a lot of strategies being deliberated. But basically, you know, Japan was notorious in history for its satoku policy in the in the 17th centuries uh, to keep out foreigners. And um, there's a, a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of jokes going around about how this is a new form of satoku and it's really making them more and more inward. Um, you know, does it have an effect on society? It's it's really hard to tell, but I can tell you, I've been trying to get into Japan for a long time, and it's not easy. 
Yeah, well, Gwen, uh, you can certainly speak to probably people that you know, but um, I, I'm sure that there's a there's a way that we could uh, speak to the Monocle Bureau in Tokyo, and we can um, assist in that. And hopefully, we will we will finally overlap because it's been too long. Gwen Robinson, our correspondent uh, for us in Bangkok, uh, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Belay, Chanda Curtis, or also Emily Isau, and of course Emma Nelson. Emma Nelson, you're still back in London, aren't you? I am absolutely sitting listening to to, to Gwen's efforts to get into Japan. Um, are you going through cookery books? Uh, because I think we're at that time um, of the program right now. We're not going to be able to have our, our regular uh, drill, of course, uh, with with Chandra, with with certainly the same recommendations. But she has. We've got all these wonderful bottles uh, on the table, which we should we should discuss. But uh, let's have a small break, uh, and we'll come back to London and Zurich right after this. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain is a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise, from its rich cultural traditions to its landscape that encompasses mountains and beaches. It's a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Want to amble from hotel room to urban beach and while away a summer's day, or take in the view from atop a Mallorcan mountain? The Spanish landscape offers a wealth of activities to suit any taste. From the sand of Formentera to the wild waves of the Costa de la Lutz, beaches abound. The coves of the Costa Brava, the endless stretches of Andalusian shoreline, the verdant coasts of Asturias, Cantabria and the Basque Country. There's a seaside style to float anyone's boat. For those who prefer to tour on two wheels, Mallorca's Tramontana mountain range is unmatched for its beauty. Try your hand at something new, whether that's kayaking, canoeing, climbing, camping, fishing or sailing. But if all that activity seems a little too much, Spain is home to some of the best spas and retreats in all of Europe. It's truly everything you're dreaming of this weekend, and it's in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday, on Monocle 24. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule, uh, Emma Nelson uh, in London, and we also have Chandra Court and Emily Zhao here uh, in Zurich as well. So Emma, just before we went out to the break, uh, mm. I was asking if you're flipping through cookbooks, uh, thinking about uh, what, what it's going to be on the dinner table tonight, uh, but also maybe, of course, uh, across the week, because you're not a busy lady. I mean, you're going <laughs> to have your pinny on, and uh, <laughs> that, that's going to be sort of you sorted from Monday to Friday. Absolutely, because that's what I do. do you actually, seriously, the, my, I am at my happy when it is hot and I'm in the kitchen and I've got my penny on and I'm cooking. That is when my I am absolutely in my, my happiest state. So to talk to Chandra about what I can serve with the, the food that I'm cooking over the week, I generally go to an Italian cookbook. I go right back to the 1940s to Elizabeth David, who introduced olive oil to the United Kingdom and she introduced garlic and she introduced all the flavours that we are so used to. But I've also been, uh, I've just been sort of like rummaging around and we were talking at the beginning of the programme while you were still uh, whizzing your way over to do four times. 90 about the fact that I have grown some rather magnificent tomatoes and I'm asking Chandra what I she's going to recommend for me to drink with it tonight because the plain taste of tomatoes it's Chandra it's quite a hard flavor to to have a nice wine with but won't we because it's really acidic 
Yeah, and usually you, you cook the tomato and then they go better with the wine. But if you want to have the fresh tomato, especially they are anyway the best because they are from your balcony and you watch them growing and becoming, um, what do you say, explosive? Um, I think <laughs> Very explosive I, tomatoes, yeah. I bring you back to, to Sardinia. and You take a chilled fresh vermentino, uh, you take the, you cut the, the tomato, put some oregano, some olive oil, some salt and, and pepper and the vermentino will will fit very well. Why does I it can, have, I can totally, I can completely, as, as sort of a Sardinian official uh, uh, this weekend, I can completely back Chandra up on this because we had also, I would say, a, a Sardinian version of a panzanella yesterday, but they had also added tuna with it as well. So it was capers and onions uh, and lots of tomato, not not too much tuna, and then a little bit of uh, bread in it as well. And we just had the most exceptional vermentino. So it works. It, it works. It works. And you know, especially because you are in the origin of, of the grape also, then it works even better. You are on the island, you are relaxed. So you remember all the famous happenings with the holiday wines. When you are somewhere, you love the moment, so everything is good. But I, I, I trust that Vermentino travels also well to London, to the balcony of, of Emma, and it will fit very well. <laughs> it travelled back as well. I, I, got two, I got two bottles at, at, at Duty Freeze, and it, it, this Capicera uh, VT, it, it travelled it traveled incredibly well. Tell me, Chandra, is there anything, has anything ever been sort of like formally done in terms of investigation as to why a bottle of chilled rosé by the sea in the south of France tastes like nothing else, and then the minute that you bung it in the hold of a plane and bring it back to cloudy London doesn't quite taste the same? Well, maybe it has to do why some people on islands or on the beach live longer than when you go back to the city. It's it's when you are in holiday mood or when you leave all your your daily life back or somewhere hidden or you know you, you're away now for a certain while. All your senses, all your mood is is positive. I suppose also some some hotel rooms that you are they look much better because you are near to the sea and you're relaxed and you are you are off. So 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 it's not to underestimate what our brain is is um, deceiving us all the time and plays tricks with us. It depends where we are. Things look different or or taste different or are different. So the the, the, the let's say the big secret of a, of a beautiful life is to create the environment. That all the time you feel in the right place and you feel happy or good. And leave your lips alone because I'm wondering as well, Chandra, <laughs> do you have any any evidence as well? So if you have, uh, of course, injections in your lips, is this going to also maybe af- affect sort of the way you experience and taste wine, do you think? You know, this is this is all the absurdity that is happening today. I think people, because they can show things on, on their telephone and they can communicate to, 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 to strangers, they start to create the most crazy things and just to be more more bizarre than the other. And it's almost polemic what is happening in, in this in this in this scene instead of just being busy with what goes in your body to drink or eat the best products, to listen to the best sound, to speak with people with common sense, I think soon we can we can go and look for them. Yeah, well, I, I'm also, you know, maybe this is going to be a new nation as well. So if Sardinia, uh, of course, didn't, didn't become one of Switzerland's cantons, I often sort of think that there, there, there will, a nation will emerge uh, where people, you know, who, who do not want to have their holidays ruined by Instagrammers uh, or people wandering around doing conference calls. And I mean, I was even, I was surprised yesterday you know, as well, just when I was saying, you know, 
just some extraordinarily rude guests at hotels and how they were one one gentleman just completely kicked off and and just went up to the bar didn't say oh you forgot me over here he he sort of stormed over to to these lovely bartenders in the hotel gentlemen in white jackets it was a very nice scene and he said he goes do you have an issue with me and and was shaking his finger at them and saying do you have a problem with me and, said, and of course everyone stops i mean it completely spoils the mood of this tranquil setting and he said i I've been waiting for my guacamole for 20 minutes. He goes, what is your issue with me? And I thought, well, if you behave like that, of course they have an issue with you because you've probably been around for probably for a while in that lobby and behaving like that. But Tyler, if there ever was an Instagram account for you to join Instagram for, it would be, I think it's something to the effect of influencers in the wild. And essentially it's all about anthropological videos of people taking selfies of themselves being completely obnoxious. But it, in a way, ridiculing them a little bit. So I think you would get a kick out of that. Okay, so we can we can deploy a bunch of correspondents to be able to be able to to pick those up. Emma, mm. you know, it's you've been spending some time on the Med, and I believe you're also returning to the Mediterranean um, as well quite soon. Correct? I am, hopefully, if the hotel replies to my emails. Um, yes, I'm going to Parma. I'm sort of chasing in the in the in the steps of Andrew uh, Tuck, our um, editor in chief. I suspect he won't be there at the time, but we went last year, fell in love with the place, and the minute I've never done this before, the minute I booked, I fell off the plane. Uh, back in the UK, I booked two whole weeks because we thought this was a place worth, uh, really, really, really worth uh, exploring and, and, and going to. I, you've been there quite recently. What I love about Palmer is it feels like a capital city. And I know Andrew Tucker said this as well. You feel like, you know, if Nice got it right, this is how I feel that Palmer is because they've spent a lot of money in doing it up. And the food is amazing. I'm not that good at the wine there, but maybe Chandra could help me with finding a vineyard in, in Mallorca. Maybe that could be a project for you. I got quite good at vermouth. Um, I think I practiced at hard, as hard at vermouth as you did on Vermentino in Sardinia, Tyler. Oh, no, but also there was a lot of very, very good frozen peach bellinis. Uh, not, not quite frozen. We're not talking that they came out of a slushy machine. <laughs> However, I will say we, I was at Schumann's in Munich a couple of weeks ago, and there was uh, there was a kind of a slushy style um yeah, froze, frozen Bellini, which um, was was very, very nice drink to, to me. But Chandra, any thoughts on Mallorquin wines? Well, they're, they're heavily booming, so I think it shouldn't be problematic to find some wines. And they, they, they what, what I tasted recently was Sol Mayol. It's a rather powerful wine. It's owned by, by, by Swiss, Swiss men. And uh, you will find a lot of like Merlot, Cabernet blend, so, so heavy wines that, that will put you in, in, after three, four sips, in a relaxed state. More than a relaxed state, it might actually put me under the table or on the way to <laughs> hospital. <laughs> Is there anything slightly lighter than that that I might be able to drink, you know, around like one o'clock? Well, you know, there's always the rosé culture and the rosé and sea and, and summer, summertime goes very well. So you will find a lot of rosé and really they, it's a booming culture. So you will find more, uh, wines from Mallorca all over. John, is there an end date for rosé? when you should really stop drinking rosé? No, because of Instagram, it doesn't end because it's the wine that looks the nicest on the, on the pictures. Oh my goodness. Now, wait, did, did uh, Emily, you also, you're, you're after a wine recommendation just before we go, correct? Yeah, so I have some leftovers from last night's dinner, which was Piccolo Express, a Filipino, very kind of high when it comes to spices, kind of kick in your mouth. Uh, and I failed. I think I paired it with the Malbec and it didn't really work. So something spicy uh, to eat what would you pair it with it's, it's you know it's, it's usually very difficult and if you go for example to india or, or to, when mm. you eat curry you don't drink wine while you eat this usually there, there are also other reasons but when when there's so much spices for example water is the worst it gets more spicy you need a, a 
almost a sweetish wine that is soft to your tongue because your tongue is, is exhausted or has to work a lot or tastes a lot. So what always works in a good start is the Gewürztraminer from Alsace. You take like a Vieille Vigne, which is rather concentrated, has this licorice, honey taste and uh, with, with some spices also. This, this works. If you take a red wine, it has to be one with no acidity and no tannins. So maybe more like an like a overripe Primitivo, which is soft. But, but I will rather go with a Gewürztraminer from Alsace. Sounds good. And then explains why I got it wrong last time. <laughs> so hopefully you have one of those in, in your cellar. But if not, I'm sure he can he- head down to Butterlach Wines or something at the Hauptbahnhof. And they have this. Yeah, yeah. Find, find what he needs. Uh, we're going to have to say goodbye. Chandrakurt, thank you very much. Emily So, uh, Also, uh, Emma Nelson back in London. Petri Burstoff uh, in Estonia. Uh, Enrico uh, Franceschini uh, down on the Suffolk Coast. And Gwen Robinson. Uh, Emma, do you want to do the thank yous for uh, all of our fine technical staff? Thank you very much indeed to Desi Boundley for keeping things together together and for keeping a time check on you, Tyler, tracking your movements from Zurich Airport. Uh, and also in London, Nora Hall, also very good at keeping track of what uh, what was happening to you as well. Uh, that's all we have time for for Monocle on Sunday. Uh, I'll be here with a bit more continuity to see you through your weekend with a little bit of music. Tyler, what's Indeed. on the cards for you? In cards for me, I'm actually going to go to the Kunsthaus, uh, look at a bit of art uh, this afternoon, uh, and then maybe I'll see what's in the fridge. I'll talk to Chandra off air as well. But we'll chat next week because it's going to be game show Sunday, isn't it, Emma? I can't wait. I'm going to get my Dolly Bird outfit ready right now. Very good. I'm Tyler Brule in Zurich. I'm Emma Nelson in London. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening.